This is The Guardian. Today, what happens to a city when its schools start shutting down? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. At Gospel Oak Primary School in North London, it's another normal day for the headmaster. When I came here and I discovered that they still had a school bell, uh, I thought it was remarkable. But now, actually, it's one of the things that first thing in the morning and standing out there to greet all of the children and parents, that's a bit of the day I really enjoy. But at the school gates, parents seem stressed. Well, it seems to be we're having more new builds, more regeneration, more people influxing into the borough, but more schools closing. It doesn't make sense. And it is confusing. In such a wealthy neighbourhood, why are so many schools shutting down? My niece and nephew in St Dominic's, they had to leave, you know. There's so many kids that have actually lost out on education from moving. And for the parents as well, you know, their anxiety is going through the roof and so is the children's. Because if you go into the inner city, Westminster and places like that, they're all comfortable, you know what I mean? But if you go out of Westminster, you're seeing children suffering. You're seeing families suffering. You know, you see parents struggling. But this isn't just a story about the cost of living or a story just about London. This is about communities being broken and divided out by class and by age at a pace that is utterly transforming the way that we live. Young working families pushed to the margins, schools lost forever, and an inner city that is reshaped for the needs and the whims of the very affluent. You know, with the way things happen, there's nothing you can do. We couldn't even stop our school closing, let alone anything else. But it's the trend now, you know, it's expensive to live in London, everybody knows it, and if you can't afford it, you have to move out. What happens to society when it becomes so swiftly segregated? And why are schools so key to understanding how that change takes place? This is important for everybody because education is the thing that everybody has to have. If you don't have good quality schools for everyone, you won't have the educated, qualified people who we need to keep our country moving forward. From The Guardian, I'm Noshi Nikbal. Today in Focus, how the speed of gentrification is flipping London inside out.
Aditya Chakraborty, you're a columnist and senior economics commentator for The Guardian, and you often examine the way we live and how it's changing. Now, one huge theme you've written about a lot is gentrification. Why is it so interesting to you? Nasheed, I think a lot of people do talk about gentrification, but they don't talk about it necessarily in the way that it actually matters. So you get an awful lot of kind of conversation about hipsters and about, you know, serial cafes. Love them or hate them. Hipsters have put their stamp on everything from facial hair to fixed wheel bicycles. Now comes that edgiest of edgy hipster foods, the breakfast cereal. Do you think the local people will be able to afford the £3.20 cereal? Well, if they're poor, probably not then. And so how are you ensuring that? Can we stop that? this interview? Well, how, how come? And to me, that was always slightly beside the point. What gentrification is really about is who gets to live in a city and who has the right to work, pay rent or own a home and who a city is for. And so this is really a story of our times. It's a story of how areas that some of us would have considered home, you know, places where we were born and brought up, how they become areas where we are no longer able to, to consider our home. And, and that, I think, is why it's so fascinating. Well, you've recently written about something that goes beyond our general understanding of gentrification, and it's a story that seems to begin at the school gates. Can you tell me what you've been noticing? It's strange, Nasheen. I actually was talking to a local council leader in London, and she said to me, we're starting to see schools in our area close down and other schools going half empty. And I started to look into this a bit. And... The thing that you really start to notice in the past year or so in inner London is that within schools now, you can see the direct impact of gentrification. So if you look at Camden, we're up to four schools closing. If you look at Hackney, Southwark, Lambeth, these, all these places right in the heart of London, these are all areas where schools are now closing. I'm John Hayes, I'm the head teacher, and this is Gospel Oak Primary School in Camden. The area around the school is very diverse. Where we are situated just on the edge of Hampstead Heath, we have families on one side of our school who come from affluence. The other side of the area that we draw from, we have a lot of white British working class families. Some are uh, out of work, some are on benefits, quite often living in very overcrowded, um, poor accommodation, and anything in between. I came to this school uh, just over 11 years ago. And in that time, in Camden, I'm just thinking now, I think there have been probably three or four schools that have closed in that period of time. We've taken on from that school round the corner, we've taken uh, eight or nine children in the last few months. Aditya, why are these schools shutting? The simple answer is because there aren't the kids to take the places. Hackney's a really good example. They're reporting a big drop in the number of children in their reception classes. They're down 560 odd places from where they were 10 years ago. That's the equivalent of almost... 20 empty classrooms across their schools. Now, that has a direct financial impact upon a local authority like Hackney because they get paid mainly on how many pupils they've got. 
So if they've now got half empty classrooms or entirely empty classrooms, they have to fund that shortfall or close the classroom, close the school. So when you have capacity, when you have spaces in classes where there are not enough children, you are losing many thousands of pounds each time you have a space. Ten years ago, that wasn't the issue it is now. We could ride that out with effectively our savings. Year on year, our savings have reduced until they are now nothing. Of the school's budget, about 85% of the budget is spent purely on staffing. And so the only place to make the savings is by losing people. And I'm very proud of my staff here. They've always found the ability to step up and plug the gaps that used to be filled by colleagues who have moved on. But now we've got to that point where it's just not possible. Um, And that's a tension that is leading to a real crisis in state education. Aditya, to most people, this sounds completely at odds with what we hear and what we read about schools being oversubscribed, classrooms being overcrowded. So what you're describing in Hackney, Lambeth and so on, is it because people living in inner London are having fewer kids? The person who started me off thinking about this is the lead of Camden Council, Georgia Gould. And she said people who want kids are either being pushed out or they're choosing to leave before they have the kids because they can no longer afford to live in Camden. And she said it was the same of her friend group, people were leaving. It's actually in the census. Lambeth has seen a 10% drop in households with at least one child. Not far away, Southwark, an 11% drop. Hackney, Tower Hamlets, Islington, they've all seen big drops. And then if you go out to the outskirts of London, you're seeing a massive rise over that 20-year period in young families. So Barking and Dagenham, for instance, have seen a 33% rise in households of at least one young child. That's more than any local authority could cope with easily, right? Aditya, some people listening to this will say that, well, it's a well-established tradition for people to move out to the suburbs when they have kids. I mean, I'm sure you have friends who have not just moved to outer London, but well further beyond. What makes this different? You're absolutely right that there is an age-old thing where you swap your your flat for a home with a garden out in the suburbs to to bring up kids. The big difference is now it's happening at a speed and at a scale that council officials in Camden, in Hackney, in Southwark, in Lambeth, all within the the centre of London, they're completely taken by surprise. It goes way beyond their projections. The city has turned itself inside out the old cliche of suburbs is that they were where more elderly people went to settle down and have a more comfortable retirement. Not the case anymore. They're where young families go to find slightly cheaper housing and to cling on to living in the capital. Whereas in the absolute dead heart of the city, what you get now is a mix of young, glossy professionals, more elderly families, but you don't have the same number of young children. So I understand that London is being transformed and it is happening fast. But can you explain why having fewer children in the inner city actually is a problem? The thing I find so so interesting about this is that the idea of having your capital city without children sounds like something out of like a, a sci-fi dystopia, right? Mm. So one of the people who's been keeping a really close eye on this is a lady called Cathy Evans at the charity children England. And she's got this phrase for children. She says children are like an indicator species. 
they're the ones who tell you what the rest of the ecosystem is up to. As long as you've got children in the city, you know that the city is going to be okay. And if we start to lose young people from the heart of our city, you've got to worry about where the future of the city, where its meaning is going to come from. The other big problem machine is this. It's not just that you're losing young people, it's that you're losing a mixed society. So you're getting a really strange social mix in terms of class, but you're also losing the people who lend any society its sense of purpose, the young. And what about the rest of the UK? How is this story relevant to what's happening outside of London? There are going to be people who, who've got this in their ears and they're thinking, I don't live in London, this has got nothing to do with me, I don't care about Camden. The point is this, it's not about a city as such, it's about a process which reshapes cities. And it's not only happening in the capital city. If you go to Manchester now, you'll see a similar process at work. So it's, it's, a, it's a dynamic, it's a process which is coming to a city somewhere near you. Where do you think this particular latest story on gentrification really begins? I think we'll look back at the 2010s as being the bit when it all really kicked off. 2010s often in London is associated with one thing, the 2012 London Olympics, right? But there were two really massive things, forces that were reshaping the capital in that decade. One was the coalition government, George Osborne, David Cameron, Nick Clegg, Danny Alexander. Between them, they came up with a welfare regime that completely changed the outlook for young working families. The biggest single thing that I can mention that happened within London was the holding down of housing benefit so it no longer kept up with rising rents. And it was said at the time that that they brought in this new regime, you're going to make it impossible for working families to stay in the capital. And we have to get control of housing benefit. We are now spending as a country £23 billion on housing benefit and we have to get that budget under control. And actually what the Conservatives said was, if you can't afford to stay in London, you can't afford to live in London. The end. So that was one massive force. But then the other thing that happened that was going on within London was we were also living through this strange post-crash era, the era after the banks had collapsed and the government and the Bank of England had stepped in to pump in lots of money, particularly into housing and other asset markets. And that really started to change the capital into some kind of developer's playground. This is the era of infinity pools, which hang suspended from the sky. This is uh, the world's first see-through sky pool that's 115 feet above the ground. It's in London. Apparently, the controversy with this is that it is the most exclusive spot in London, apparently. It's only for... And what you saw in local authorities like Camden uh, and Hackney was you saw developers could get away with building very, very little genuinely affordable housing, but building a large number of eye-wateringly expensive flats, which were not suitable for families. What's really clear is that this is no accident. It has been engineered to be like this. It's been engineered by central government. It's been engineered by developers. It's been allowed by local councils. So there are three major sectors of our public economy who have allowed this to happen. And the result is 
that if you're a teaching assistant in Camden and you're bringing up kids, that the, the city is no longer affordable and livable to you in the way it was, say, 20, 30 years ago. I think things have got worse. I think uh, simply finding somewhere to live is a challenge. We know that the cost of living crisis is biting particularly hard. But, you know, when I started here, to have thought that 10 years later, I would have to set up a food bank for the parents at this school, I would not have believed that that could be possible. And it's, it's, it's tragic and it's shameful. Just how unaffordable has London become? The great irony of this, Nasheen, is that people look at London and they think, oh my God, those people are absolutely rolling in it. And if you look at the wages, it's true. London easily gets more income per head than other regions in the rest of England and Wales. However, if you look at the figures, it starts to look less good because London residents have easily the highest national expenditure per person, according to the Office of National Statistics. And most of that gets poured into housing costs. A lettings agency, largely based in London, called Benham and Reeves, just before the pandemic, did a quick exercise where it looked at rent as a percentage of net salary. That's the money that you get to take home after taxes and everything are factored in, right? Now, 20 years ago, the average Londoner was spending something like 40% of their net salary on rent. Benham and Reeves say, scroll forward to today, and your average London is spending 75% oh, of God. their net salary Stop. on rent. I don't know why I'm wincing. This is very much my reality. <laughs> Compare that to Northeast. In the Northeast, they spend something like 30% of their net salary on rent. It's a city that is so unaffordable now to young people on average salaries that it is clearly sending you a message that you are not welcome here. Did you don't have to live in London to know that there is real wealth inequality in this city, but bringing it back to schools, how is it directly affecting them now? I think the message from Camden, it's that a lot of the kids who are no longer living in Camden tend to be less well off. In Camden now, 40% of children go to private school, which is something like five, five times the national average. It's so high the proportion of children going to private schools that parents in the borough have started up a campaign group to try and convince other parents to at least look at state secondary schools. And one of the things that the, the founder of that group said to me was, there's a real fear of even stepping inside state secondary schools, which is effectively a fear of your own neighbours, right? And, and your own neighbours' children. Wow. I mean, it's kind of bonkers that there would have to be a pressure group to convince parents to look around their local school, especially in London, which actually has really good schools generally, right? Yeah. It's been one of the great success stories of New Labour was how far it was able to improve schools in London. And... It is bewildering to me to think of affluent parents who are able to spend a lot of money on their children's upbringing and education and still feel so insecure about state provision that they would not even consider it for their kids. But it's become normalised now 
within a place like Camden to look at moving your children out of the local state sector. And what about the families that are being priced out of inner London and are moving away with their children? Where are they most likely to be going? Nasheen, there was one woman I spoke to who was a local teaching assistant and her name's Louise Ellery. She has two kids. One's just about to finish his A-levels and the other's at, at her own primary school. Now, Louise is the kind of neighbour you would dearly wish you could have. In lockdown, she helped run her school's food bank. She now helps run the school's toy library. She does a load of stuff for her local community. She lives in a housing association property. Her rent comes in at 1,400 quid a month for a two-bedroom flat, which for a lot of people who rent in the private rent sector will sound okay until you look at her own salary and that comes in just over 1,600 quid. How is she surviving? Well, she gets a little bit extra in terms of benefits. She calls in some favours from her family. But it's got to the stage where she's now decided that once her boy finishes his A-level exams this summer, she's moving out of London entirely, going to live in Somerset. Oh, wow. And so the capital will lose another family. Her school loses a teaching assistant and also it loses a six-year-old girl. And this is exactly the way, Nasheen, in which this process plays out. And that's why I think this story is so interesting, because I think we've moved now well away from the era in which we could think of gentrification as being about funny beards and organic food. And now it's into actually public services shut down. Aditya, what could it mean for London if it definitively becomes a city that only the rich can afford to live in? I mean, some people would argue that we are already there. What I suppose I see happening to the centre of London is, is this. It is the low middle class and the salary earning working class who are most threatened by this, because that's where the housing market is just unaffordable and there hasn't been provision for them. It, it's those people with families who are being priced out. For those people who have got a tenure in social rental, their rents are guaranteed to be held down and, and so they're in less imminent threat of expulsion. And then at the other end, at the top end, these are people for whom the city is now being absolutely reshaped in their image. But it's the ones in between. It's the teaching systems, it's the nurses, it's the teachers and their families who will not be able to stay in the, in the centre of London. And that is basically a situation that at Camden Council, they call the, the hollowing out of their local society. That's what they refer to it, the missing middle, the hollowing out. I fear for the pressure this school is going to come under. It's really difficult to point at any light at the end of the tunnel. It just feels like it's never ending. And even with the opportunity that there may come in the next you know, year or so for a general election and potentially a change of government, at the moment I'm not seeing that as a rescue plan. It doesn't look to me as though the levels of funding that schools need are going to be achieved should Labour come to power. Um, I don't really know how bad this has to be for those in power to wake up to it. Coming up, how can we stop gentrification from hollowing out our cities? Hold up. 
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus. Aditya, I think for some of us living in London, what you're saying doesn't necessarily come as a surprise because, you know, you can sort of feel it, you know it's there. And at the same time, when you articulate it, it's quite horrifying. And I wonder when you're looking out at the record rents, which have increased by 17%, and the fact that your friends are moving out, and you know that people who have lived in their neighbourhoods for decades, whole communities, are now being pushed to the margins. Looking at all of that, do you think there is any way to reverse this trend? Yeah, I think there are some really obvious things that you can do. I'm going to give you an example. I talked talk to you about a lady called Louise, right? Now, Louise, when she announced she was going, her neighbours, some of them, started crying. And I spoke to one of her neighbours, the one who lived upstairs from her. And she's a lady called Tanya. And she's got two kids. She's from Germany. She moved into her flat in, I don't know, 2012. And since then, she's seen her rent go up. Every couple of years, it goes up. And she was speaking to her sister who lives in Berlin. Since she moved in 12 years ago, her rent's gone up once. And she said to me, when I tell my family in Germany that my rent's gone up again, they say, why? Has the landlord done some massive overhaul? They renovated everything? And I say, no, 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 that's just what it's like living in in England. That's what London's like. And Germany, as people may know, has got a system of vastly enhanced rights for renters. 
And one of the things you could just do is you could make it much, much more difficult for renters to be moved out of their flats, but also for their rents to be moved up. The other thing, of course, you could do is you could say about any new build development in London, we need to have a much higher proportion of genuinely affordable housing. Because it never is, that affordable housing provision. It never is actually affordable. Well, as you know, Nasheen, there's been all kinds of different measurements of what affordable is. So the previous mayor who went on to become the prime minister of this country, a guy some of you may know called Boris Johnson, he had this rule that it was something like 80% of market rates. Well, that's not affordable. We've now got Sadiq Khan who talks about being 50% of market rates. I'm saying to developers, I'm saying to local authorities, my expectation is if you want me to approve an application, I want a certain percentage to be affordable and by affordable, I mean how I define it rather than the previous dodgy definition. But you could easily change that and you could enforce it a lot better. Edicio, what does this story say about Britain now and about where it's going? How will this process of gentrification change our society and how has it already? It's about a process that has been aided and abetted by central government, by local government and by property developers. So it is a man-made disaster that you're looking at where the centre of a city becomes unaffordable to young working families. And the problem is it's part of a model that's now being exported to other cities in England and Wales. I think everyone listening to this, Nasheen, has heard the phrase trickle-down economics, which is the idea that if people at the top and in the centre are doing well and getting richer, then some of those riches will trickle out to the rest of us. We're not seeing that in London now. What we're seeing is an example of sucking up economics, where the energy and the effort and income of people living in the city is now being bled out of them to maintain people, the lifestyles of people right at the top. London's never really been like that. London's been a place where the poor live on the end of the driveways of the rich. We're now moving beyond that to a different kind of city where there's far more segregation, effectively, along the lines of income. You will continue to have a centre of London which has got, you know, the the restaurants will still be cleaned, the, the hotels will still have their room service and, and the cafes will still have their baristas, but they'll be commuting in from further and further away. And socially too, you've got to think about the impact of that. Like one of the most common complaints of this era is that we all live in our own bubbles, in our own echo chambers. Well, if we go down this path, we'll end up with our own spatial bubbles where what postcode you live in is very closely tied to what kind of job you do, what kind of income you have. And you will then have reinforced a sense of isolation between classes and between demographics. And the implications of that are just too terrible to think about. That was Aditya Chakraborty, Senior Economics Commentator at The Guardian. My thanks to him. You can read Aditya's piece on this story, titled Disappearing Schools, Families Forced Out, and We Call This Progress, and more of his many brilliant columns at theguardian.com forward slash profile forward slash Aditya Chakraborty. Before you go, a quick heads up. The fourth episode of Cotton Capital 
is out now and it sees the team head to Brazil. Just how is the port city of Salvador connected to the history of Britain and its wealth? Subscribe and listen now to The Guardian's new podcast series, wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today. I'm Nasheen, and this episode is produced by Thomas Glasser. Sound design is by Adam Bransbury. The executive producer was Huma Khalili. We'll be back again tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.